Episode 39, The 20-Year Timeline, Part 3. Something just came to mind. It was really strange that early when Ivan uh, was the first years of him being in prison, somebody wrote him from Miami, but it wasn't about, I didn't know it was about a shirt. He asked me if I'd ever been married uh, to somebody, somebody else other than his dad. That he had, he got a letter from, from Miami telling him that I had been married to him before. And it was Rodolfo? I don't remember the guy's name, but it could have been. But you were never married on, to this it, guy, or you didn't know this guy? Yeah, I was. I was going to help him get his documentation, his, his green card. Oh, okay. And he was going to pay me some funds, but I told him I didn't want to do it. Then I had to get a divorce. Oh, wow. That's him maybe in Miami. Maybe he got pissed off. <laughs> yeah, maybe he got pissed off and, and he told Ivan, he wrote Ivan and told him about it. And Ivan was livid. He was really upset. I didn't tell him. I said, you know, why would I share that with you? Right. You didn't need to know. So you were married, but it wasn't like a, a real relationship. You were just no, it was not. not right and I believe somebody introduced me to him somebody that I knew somebody that I was acquainted with asked me if I would do a favor for somebody that somebody was Rodolfo I won't know because I don't have the, the divorce papers they got lost in all the moves that I've made that's the only one that I know that, that would have written him about being married because that guy was the only one that knew. He lived in Miami or he, he was living in Dallas? I never knew the guy was in, in Miami. I married him here in Dallas. When I divorced him, I didn't know where he was. I just wanted to divorce. The attorney took care of all the paperwork. I see. So how long were you married to him, though? Maybe three months, a couple of months. It was an old. But so you must have told him about the bloody shirt. No. Never talked to him afterwards. Why would I? I wouldn't have anything else to say. And I'm not 100% sure that that was the guy that I married. I don't know if that's the name. <laughs> you can't remember the, the guy's name? Nope. It wasn't anything to keep in, in my memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so regardless of the guy who's who you married's name, did you ever tell the guy that you were married with for a couple of months, did you ever tell him about the bloody shirt? I never, never told him. A hundred percent sure. I've never talked to anybody about that shirt other than Tammy. So how would this guy, because I saw somewhere that Ivan got this letter in 2004. Okay. That sounds about right. That's going to say 2003. That's when you were married, 2003? No, that's when Ivan told me about it, and he was mad. So oh. I was married to him probably early 80s, mid-80s. Right after I divorced Abner. Oh, so this happened in the 80s? Yeah. Now, this wasn't anything recent. Uh -uh. So, this was, so how would this guy have written? Exactly. 
okay, this. So you were married to this guy in the 80s, and then somehow somebody wrote Ivan around 2004 mm-hmm. with knowledge that you had. Did you, mother was, did you know that your mother was married to another guy? So, yeah. So he brings up the fact that, that you were married to another so why guy. Why don't you tell me you were married before? That's how he opened up our conversation. I had even forgotten about it, man. He said, don't play dumb. I said, I'm not playing dumb. I'm trying to remember. It was a long time ago. I said, why would you, why would it bother you? That's none of your business. Oh, okay. So now I understand a little better why you didn't remember this guy's name. It hadn't been like 20 years. It's been 40 years. Yeah. Well, but it's just so bizarre that whoever wrote Ivan was trying to to throw some shade at you or you yeah know. throw me under the bus and then also he had information about the bloody shirt so I'm just trying to figure out uh-huh. how did this guy so you don't remember telling anybody before you told Tammy you no know, whoever it was whoever it was that talked to me about helping this guy out knew Abner and Abner has a big mouth right but that's about the marriage not the bloody shirt right or right did, did Abner know right. about the bloody shirt before you told Tammy no no they knew about the marriage. Well, yeah. So I, when I uh, I was searching through all the files, and then when I put in this that guy's name, Cardo or Pichardo, I've got a 2007 letter that Tammy had written that guy, Picardo. And to Picardo, she said, I'm going to be... I'm going to be very honest with you, Mr. Picardo. You wrote Ivan back in 2004, telling him about a secret marriage his mother Sylvia had and even producing the marriage certificate. And you told Ivan about a shirt that his mother had that was tied to the murders. So this would have been after you had already confirmed with Tammy about the shirt. Both of these things were true, and we have to talk to you. You have to tell us how you knew about these things and anything else that you know. Do you know who killed James and Amy? Wow. She never shared that with me. The only one that knew about the bloody shirt was Tammy. So how did this guy find out about it and write Ivan? And he didn't get it rolling with Tammy. And Tammy's writing this guy asking how he knew about the bloody shirt. So I tell you, this bloody shirt thing, this is like a Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. And this man in Miami did write Tammy back. He seemed to be familiar with the case but his emails were somewhat cryptic. It's hard to know exactly where this guy was coming from. This is the first correspondence found in the files. In my last correspondence with you about Ivan Cantu's case, I asked you to contact Ivan Cantu's girlfriend, Amy Betcher, with this email to see if she would like to recant her testimony against Ivan. It looks like her testimony. It's one of the reasons that Ivan Cantu received the death sentence. Note, my relatives and myself have never lived in Texas, and I have never met Ivan or his cousin, or Amy. From Rudy Pachardo, Miami, Florida. Contacting Amy Betcher is not an option for me at this time. The reason I want to talk to you is because of the letters that you wrote to Ivan after he was sent to death row. These letters have your name and return address on them, the same address that you live at today. This is why I am contacting you. Please write me back. 
I need to write to the new chief of the police department that convicted Ivan. I think you ask Ivan to do the same, asking them if the police department invented the evidence on the inmates. Did you write any letters to Ivan in the past four years? This person knows things about the case that no one else knows, and he can help free Ivan. If you did not write those letters, I need for you to tell me. I did not. Who would have used your name and address? If you do not have any information about these letters and or the murders, then I guess we do not have any more to talk about. Sylvia found out through the county clerk's office, the man she married back in the 80s was named Alfredo Sanchez. So as it turns out, Sylvia was not married to this Rodolfo. When I tried to reach out to Rodolfo via phone and email, I got no response. Tammy and Ivan have wondered if actually someone was just using Rodolfo's name and address to let Ivan know about the bloody shirt. Whoever that individual was, how did they know about Sylvia's marriage in the 80s and that she had the bloody shirt in the 2000s? It's still a mystery. For a piece of evidence we don't even know was ever connected to the crime, this bloody shirt saga is one of the most confounding elements in this case. And although, because it was lost, it turned out not to hold any evidentiary value, the bloody shirt was not without consequence. In fact, it changed the course of Ivan's post-conviction proceedings and counsel because he wrote to the judge letting him know. How the situation came about, that it was newly discovered evidence, um, and you know, it may or may not have something to do with my case, but we need, we need to get down to business and get to it, and, and that my current attorneys weren't helping me. And specifically, back then, there was, a, there was a case called Rines v. Weber, which allows you to stay and abate a case. Basically, if, if, if you have state issues that are unexhausted, put them on hold at the federal level, bounce back to state, address them, get it on the record, get a ruling, and go, and go back. You know, it's kind of like hitting a you know, time stop or, or pause on it, and they wouldn't do that for me. And so when I presented it to, to Judge Ward through an ex parte sealed information, he saw that there was a, a major problem there. He ended their court appointment. Ivan's first federal habeas attorneys. And appointed Gina. Bun. And Gina came to see me, and we sat down, we went through everything, and um, she's been doing the best that she could ever since then. Ever since then. But the problem is, is that by the time I got Gina, my appeals were a complete mess. My appeals were, were, were barred. The laws were against me, and even by the time you get an attorney that knows what they're doing, their hands are tied. Because even though Gina could recognize and see all the problems, she couldn't address it. She could only recognize them versus tackling it and fixing it. Because, and it's not that she didn't want to. The laws constrained, and they hold her to not be able to do that. Because of things that had already happened, things that your previous attorneys had done. That's right, because the groundwork wasn't laid in the past, and my issues were barred. Now, Gina, she did try to stay in abate and bounce me back. To, to deal with that, but the judge, he, he denied it because keep in mind when Gina came on, my federal appeal had already been filed. I was just awaiting a ruling. She didn't formulate my federal appeal. Really, really she caught the tail end of it, tried to work a couple of things at the last minute, it didn't work, but he did not allow her to go back to the state court, he denied me. So in 2009, the judge denied the motion to stay in abate and Ivan's federal writ of habeas corpus was denied. 
A month later, Gina filed a notice of appeal in the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, which is the federal court with appellate jurisdiction over district courts in Texas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. This is when all the court systems can get confusing. To break it down, it goes first, trial court, where a jury or judge renders a decision. Then there are four appellate courts that all capital cases are sent. So the second court is the criminal court of appeals. Third is the federal court. Fourth, the circuit court that oversees the federal courts in that area. Fifth, and finally, the appeal goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. Ivan jokingly called the process five steps on a ladder of death. Ivan still maintains a sense of humor. So in 2010, the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court scheduled oral arguments for Ivan's case in New Orleans. The following year, that Fifth Circuit Court denied and affirmed the federal district court ruling. Shortly after, in March of 2011, the Collin County Court issued Ivan his first death warrant, which was set for August 30th of 2011. And that put Ivan on death watch, the same place Ivan finds himself today, awaiting his second scheduled execution. Some 12 years later, but getting back to 2011, what's riveting about that scenario is Ivan was given an execution date and he still had an appeal left with the Supreme Court. His Supreme Court writ was filed while he was on death watch. And it was also within the same time period that Ivan's lawyer, Gina Bunn, went to the prosecutor's office and argued that according to a previous Supreme Court decision, in Skinner v. Switzer, a prisoner is entitled to DNA material for testing to challenge his conviction. The prosecutor's office agreed, which ultimately led to the retraction of Ivan's 2011 execution date and the post-conviction DNA testing and hearings aforementioned in this podcast. This is an interview with Ivan from 2011, months after that stay of execution. When you're facing an execution date, you have to prepare for that. I was like two weeks away from filling out my execution witness list. You know, having to fill out and turn in that paperwork as to what I'm going to do with my body, what I'm going to do with my remains. You know, having to deal with that was such a... I mean, it was was horrible. And in addition to that, you know, I had already started to write letters saying goodbye to people, not knowing whether or not I was going to get a stay. I felt hopeful for one, but but I, I see the system for what it is. Even without a doubt, when guys can prove they're innocent, they're still executed. So it's not always about justice here, especially in this state. It's about revenge. The state doesn't want to accept the truth that, that wrongful convictions occur all the time, even across the country. Well over a hundred guys have been exonerated from death row. You know, some because of DNA evidence, some because of wrong eyewitness testimony, and some because of, you know, the real killer just came forward and admitted to the crime in those cases. So after a hundred times 
at what point, what number does society or even the states or the government need to see to realize there's a problem? Right now, we're at, we're at over 100. Do they need to see 200? Do they need to see 300? What is that number of wrongful convictions that they need to see to end, to end all this craziness? According to the Death Penalty Information Center, since 1973, 190 death row prisoners have been exonerated of all charges related to the wrongful conviction that put them on death row. And since that same year, in the U.S., roughly 1,550 people have been executed. So when you do the math, for every eight people executed, one person on death row has been exonerated. One in eight. A staggering statistic. And the most common causes of wrongful death penalty convictions are official misconduct and perjury or false accusations. And those issues sound familiar. Like 2011, the following year was pivotal for Ivan. The Supreme Court granted relief in Ivan's case in 2012. In light of the Supreme Court ruling, Martinez v. Ryan, which considered whether criminal defendants have a right to effective assistance of counsel in collateral state post-conviction proceedings. And the bouncing around from court to court gets complicated. But here, Gina explains, starting back from... When it gets to federal court, claims of ineffective assistance at guilt innocence were raised, but at that point, they were what's called procedurally defaulted. A federal court is not going to consider the merits of a claim that was not raised in state court. It was really that issue that is why the, the Supreme Court uh, granted, vacated, and remanded the case back to the lower federal courts in 2012. It went to the federal district court first, and, and that district court passed on it in 2008, went to the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans, in 2011, and then to the U.S. Supreme Court in 2012, they actually sent it back to the lower federal courts to consider whether these lower federal courts should have looked at these claims of ineffective assistance at guilt innocence. Also 2012 was the year that Ivan's defense finally got a copy of Detective Wynn's binders, those that came to light during the Subrosa hearing. It took 11 years for the defense to get access to the 400 plus pages of additional evidence. Which also means that when Ivan's writ of state habeas and writ of federal habeas were filed, Ivan's counsel still did not have this major piece of the case file. So even if they wanted to, they could not have been fully effective. And to this day, there is still evidence that Ivan and his attorney have requested that has not been handed over. We're still missing phone records. We're having to defend a case with cherry-picked information, and it's a complete nightmare. And it was also 2012 that the investigation first went into Minnesota, back when private investigator Eddie Frankham was on the case. Steve here is an investigator out of Minnesota. 
And I'm, you can probably tell, not from here. Uh uh. I'm from Texas. Oh. Okay. Well, what do you think I'm here to talk to you about? Ivan Cantu. That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. So, um, you are visibly upset. Whenever I hear his name, it's just. Sure. I finally went and got help, like, to talk about it. Um, okay. Like, April of this year. Finally, like, spoke to a therapist and okay. stuff about it. Okay. Well, it's a pretty serious situation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I've, I've come obviously a very, very long way to come yes. to come meet with you. Mm -hmm. So I do appreciate your time. Do you say that you remember your trial testimony like it was yesterday? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right before you left, they, uh, he asked you if there was anything you would like to change about your story, and your answer was no. Yes. Guess have any business cards? Guess who that is? What's your name? I'm Jack. Oh, you're her brother. Hi. 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 Yeah. Nothing to say, I'm just curious. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Here's my idea. Yeah. All right, thank you. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. It is interesting that Jeff just hangs out in the back bedroom the whole time during this interview. I don't think investigator Frankham figured he would get so lucky as to find Jeff at the residence he located Amy. Um, so, and does that hold true today? Is, um, I mean, did you testify truthfully? Yes. Okay. The questions that you answered, did you know for sure that those answers were accurate, or did you just kind of go along with what the no, state was saying? I that's what I remember living through. Another question that I do have is, when you met with the prosecutors that those three to five hours, whatever it was, before the trial started, um, were they telling you how to answer? No, not that I can re recall. Okay, what all did y'all talk about? They just... um. They just came in and said that they are attorneys or whatever. Okay. But they didn't really ask. They said they were going to ask me a whole bunch of questions on stand. They didn't, like... Did they go through them with you while you were there with them? No. So what did y'all do for those all those hours? And they just kind of talked to me or whatever. Um, you talk about when he walked down the hall and shot at me and missed my head a couple inches. I can tell you exactly. <laughs> So, so tell me about that. Um, I, I've heard the pizza man story. Yeah. How did that story come about? The pizza man? Sure. That's um, what he whispered in court. What he whispered? It like moved his lips, the pizza man or something. What do you mean? Uh, he just said the pizza man. Tell him the pizza man did it. Oh, he told you that? Yeah. When did he tell you that? Like the night that he did, went over there. And then, like, he whispered in court when I was sitting on stand, and I looked at him, and he whispered, I love you, and then the pizza man. So while Amy was on the witness stand, testifying against Ivan for capital murder, Ivan whispers from his seat across the courtroom, I love you, and then the pizza man. Hmm. Oh, he did do that? Yeah. The night that you, your hand got hurt, what was that fight about? What did y'all, how did that all come about? You know, I don't even know. Um, we went out to eat. We came back. We were talking about like getting married and I don't know what else was said. And we both took um, a Xanax. We were sitting on the couch. I don't know, it just kind of escalated or something like that. And I don't know if it was due to money or what, but 
he went like down the hallway and he had the only key to the apartment. So I went and grabbed the keys. He went down the hallway into the room and he stood in the hallway and next thing you know, the gun was getting shot at me. Okay, and where were you standing then? I was standing close by the front door because I was gonna try to find the one key to the apartment. After he shot, he came over and slammed the door and it was this hand here. So he shot at you first? Yeah. This gun of Ivan's, the, the one that he was using, do you happen to, you know where he got that gun? No, I don't. No idea? No idea. Just one that he had? I have no idea. Okay. Do you know if anyone else ever saw Ivan with a gun beside you? Not that I can recall. Ivan has argued that that last statement should discredit both Amy and Jeff, because Ivan says Jeff was continually with him and Amy. Ivan wasn't hanging out with Jeff alone. So if Jeff saw Ivan with a gun every day, like he testified to, Amy would have been in the same room too. So... Ivan has argued if that were true, Amy would have just said, well, Jeff saw Ivan with a gun just like me. During trial, do you remember that you testified that uh, inside the trash can where the, the, the pants and all that, there was also a pair of uh, latex gloves? Do you remember that? I remember the pants. Okay. And so I remember it was in the kitchen. Yeah. You don't remember the latex gloves? Nope. Okay. Nope. She didn't remember the latex gloves when I interviewed her in 2020 as well. And she didn't remember the latex gloves at trial in 2001. But as we know by now, in all of her statements, she said Ivan came back bloody wearing the latex gloves. It is just so curious why that detail, seemingly a detail that would stand out, she never remembered after giving her statements to the police. You testified that Ivan uh, said that he was, he had the Dallas Police Department on his payroll, for lack of better words. Is that correct? Yes. Um, but he also worked at Super Salad. Let me ask you, wh why did you believe that the Dallas Police Department was working for Ivan? He told me, he just said that he was with the mafia. And when you watch movies, I don't know, I was just naive and... He said there's, if I try to run or try to call somewhere, there's only one way out, six feet under. He said this wasn't his first rodeo. What did you take that to mean? I took it as like, this, you know, the same the first time I was, that he's done something like this. He gave you a ring, right? Yes. Did he get down on one knee? And no. He didn't? No. Not that, <laughs> okay. I, not that I recall. Okay. When did he give you the rings? It was before we left. Before you left for Arkansas? Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, can you can you describe that ring? Oh my gosh, it's been a long time. I know it's, it was silver. It was silver? Yeah, that's all I can remember. Okay. Now, when you say it's silver, do you mean it was made out of silver or it was silver in color? It's silver in color. Okay. Do you remember how you described it when you testified? No, I don't. You don't? No. You don't remember how you described that ring? No, I don't. Do you remember what kind of metal the ring was made out of? No, I don't. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I can refresh your memory. Uh, do you remember testifying that it was it was a platinum ring? 
No, I don't remember. Saying. You don't remember that? No, I don't. Um, well, you did. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a... That's okay. Do you happen to remember if it was a platinum ring? Or why you may have thought that it was at some time? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I have no idea. I don't know jewelry that well. You don't? No. I remember it was like this color, kind of. Yeah, kind of like silver. Yeah. All right. Now, this ring that I've got on here, I've got two rings on here. Mm -hmm. Um, They're both silver in color, correct? Well, they're a little... That one has like a tint of gold, or maybe it's the white. Well, let me show <laughs> Sorry. You. I mean, they're not yellow gold, correct? Right. Do, okay. Is one of them, do you know what kind of metal they're made out of? No, I don't. If I told you this one was made out of silver, would you believe me? I don't, not really. What if I told you it was made out of white gold? I don't really know white gold. What about platinum? Nope. <laughs> you don't have any idea, do you? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, that's okay. What about this other one? Do you know if it's silver or white gold or platinum? No, it looks like kind of metalish. Just metalish. Uh, sorry, not to be rude or anything. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I appreciate your your honest answers. Um, and the reason I ask is because when you when you did testify that uh, the rings were platinum. That was pretty significant, and the reason why is because Miss Kitchens, the deceased, mm -hmm. the ring that was supposedly taken off of her or that was missing, mm -hmm. it was made out of platinum. Okay. And I'm just wondering how you knew that, or why you thought that the ring that you had was platinum. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, do you remember if anyone told you to say that it was platinum? Mm -hmm. No. Did you know that Amy Kitchen's ring was platinum? No. Okay. And um and you had no no idea um what that might have been made out of. Mm -mm. Okay. Well I'm just wondering, do you have any do you know why you would have said it was or testified that it was platinum? Mm -mm. Let me see if I can find that real quick. This is a uh, volume thirty five. If you want to start reading right about there in line item one, I've got highlighted the part about the ring. Okay. What happened when you got back to your apartment? We went back in. He ate some more mushrooms, offered me some. I said no. He put on a necklace, a bracelet, and then he proposed to me. When you say he proposed to you, what did he say? He said, will you marry me? What did he do after he said that? He put a ring on my finger. What kind of ring? It was like a platinum ring, a diamond ring. An engagement ring? Yes. Why did you say yes? He had a gun. I wasn't going to say anything that's going to get me killed. Do you want me to repass that? No, no, that's fine. Do you, uh, no, that's okay. Do you remember that part? Yeah, I don't remember saying that. I remember that part, but I... I remember when he, he got back or whatever. You remember what? When he got back the first time. I don't know if it was that time when he was saying this wasn't his first rodeo or whatever. I don't think it was his first rodeo. His face was all puffed up on this. I think it was this side. But you don't remember testifying that it was a platinum ring? Mm -hmm. Okay. But that testimony 
Amy stating that it was a platinum ring really shored up for the jury that she was wearing Amy Kitchen's platinum ring. I wonder why Amy would have testified to that on the witness stand. When you met with the prosecutors three to five hours, whatever it was, before the trial started, were they telling you how to answer? No, not that I can recall. Did the prosecution at all talk to you prior to being on the stand? Mm, not that I recall. So what did y'all do for those all those hours? They just kind of talked to me or whatever. Hmm. I wonder if that platinum ring might have come up in those three to five hours. But let's put a pin in that for a moment and switch gears back to Amy's statements prior to trial. Now, interestingly, the word platinum only comes up in one of Amy's four statements to police. In the fourth statement to Detective Wynn, she stated, He gave me a ring. This is the same ring I later found out that belonged to Amy Kitchen. In the first statement in her own handwriting, she stated, Ivan said, will you marry me? And gave me a ring, and I said yes. But in her second statement, that was taken the same day as her first statement, just a few hours later, and in the handwriting of Sergeant Mark Hollingsworth of the Arkansas State Police. In that statement, she said, He put a ring on my finger. The ring had a large stone in the center and some smaller stones, and the setting was a platinum band. And that matches Amy Kitchen's missing engagement ring to a T. But when Amy walked into the Arkansas Police Station that day, on November 10th, 2000, whatever the ring she was actually wearing a few days prior and showed off to her parents, there was no way for her to know what metal the band was made out of. Do you know if it's silver or white gold or platinum? No, it looks like kind of metalish. Okay. I have no idea. I don't know jewelry that well. You don't? No. And if Amy didn't know what kind of metal it was outside the Arkansas police station that day before she walked in, where is the only place that information could have come? From inside the police station. But how did the Arkansas police know there was a missing engagement ring and that it was platinum? Well, Kramer testified that after Amy got back to Arkansas, Amy told her mother and him her story about everything that went down in Dallas. She told them that on November 9th, and Kramer immediately called the local sheriff's office. Did you all go to Sheriff Mart's office in Izzard County? Not at that time. Not at that time. Why? Sheriff Mart says he thinks we should bring a state investigator in and let him take the statement. So he wanted us to come in the next day. Did you go in the next day? Yes, we did. So between November 9th and November 10th, Arkansas police were going back and forth with Dallas PD. And here's how we know that. Significantly, in this second statement written by the same Arkansas sergeant, Amy also stated, On the way to Club 7, Ivan threw out a Rolex watch that belonged to James. That information didn't come from Amy, and that information couldn't have originated with this Arkansas sergeant. That information had to have come from Dallas PD, because they're the ones that made the report that James Rolex was missing. And Dallas PD was on the phone taking a telephonic statement 
as Sergeant Mark Hollingsworth was handwriting Amy's second statement. In fact, Amy's third statement that was being taken at the same time in Dallas stated, Sergeant Mark stated that he would be happy to assist by interviewing Amy and locking her into a statement of the accounts that occurred as she remembered them. So clearly, there was coordination. And that's how this Arkansas sergeant knew Amy Kitchen's engagement ring was platinum and that James Rolex was reported missing. From the very first day that Amy walked into a police station, the police were feeding her details, crucial details, to make her statement match the crime. Now, in putting all that together, does that prove Ivan's innocent? No, it does not. But it does prove that to a significant degree, the police did manufacture this case against Ivan, who is scheduled to be executed in less than 80 days. So what happened with the ring? I don't know. I have no clue. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you had to give it to him at some point. He, uh, on the way back from Arkansas, he just asked for every stuff back. On the way back from Arkansas, what, what did that trip take? About eight hours? Uh, I don't know. I don't really. Yeah, took some time. Yeah, I remember when we left Arkansas, we went and said goodbye to my mom and um, stuff like that up at O'Rourke. I didn't think I was going to make it back. You thought he, why? I just thought he was going to shoot me or whatever. Uh, okay, because <laughs> you thought he still had the gun at the time, or did he? Oh, have he it? did. Okay. Yeah, he did. Okay. So you said that on the way back he started taking things from you? What all did he, he take? Just, huh? What all did he take? He just asked for the ring and, I don't know. Let's quote it or whatever, you know. Okay. Now, he took some other items from you, too, correct? And you all went and dumped them somewhere, or he did? He threw them out the window or put them in a dumpster? Um, he took the Rolex or whatever. Okay. When we, when we left the house there, then he threw it out on the tollway. Anytime that she says something bad about me, it had to relate to an item. She didn't have access to it, or she couldn't give it to him. So therefore, her answer for everything was, well, it was thrown away on the highway, or it was thrown away in the trash, or this dumpster over here. Do you realize that? And what investigator Frankham didn't realize when he was interviewing Amy here in 2012 is that the Rolex would be located in 2019. But back in 2012... He took the Rolex or whatever, then he threw it out on the tollway. That lie rolled right off her tongue. Okay. And didn't he take some, um, didn't you have some boots that he took from you, some shoes that you wore over to the, to... No, I wore my shoes. Yeah, but when he came and picked you up the first time and you went over to the crime scene, um, then you left there and you went to Arkansas. Didn't he take some black shoes from you? You testified to that. He had black shoes. Let's see here. Let me see if I can refresh your memory a little bit. This is the same volume, volume 35. It's going to be page um, 169 and 170. 
On the way back from Arkansas to Dallas, did you see Ivan throw anything else away? Our shoes. Which shoes? The ones that we wore at Amy and James's house. Why did he throw those away? He said we couldn't have them no more because the bottoms of them. What was wrong with the bottoms of them? The, like, the shoe prints that they make. He was afraid it would somehow link you all to being in the house? Yes. Did they have any blood on the bottom of them? No. And that was his hiking boots? Yes. And what shoes of yours? A pair of black ones. Are they shoes or boots or... They're like half boots that came to like here. Like to here, I guess you were showing. And they said... Where did he throw those away at? At a dumpster, at a food place. You said at a dumpster, at a, at a food place. Do you remember what city or state? I think we were still in Arkansas and Little Rock. Okay, I don't remember that. You want to take a look at it? Yeah. Maybe easier I'm not if, uh, saying, I'm No, no, saying, I understand. I'm just trying to... I don't remember throwing any shoes away. Well, you're... I think you testified that he did. Um, yeah. I don't remember giving boots or... Is it possible that... I could have. I'm not saying I did. Yeah. I'm just saying I don't... Re- I don't recall. I want to show you... I've got an actual pair of boots. It's the same... It's, it's the actual pair that you... I showed you a picture of. Do those look familiar? Not really, but they're probably mine there. Something I would wear. I mean, you can touch them. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I didn't. And here's the other one. And you can see a picture of these boots on our website and social media. They are black half boots, as Amy described the boots at trial. They're a size six. Probably I'm not going to say it. No, I don't remember them, though. I don't. You don't remember them at all? <laughs> not really. Okay. But I'm sure, you know. But what you're telling me today is that you don't recall ever owning these? I don't recall, but I'm not denying it. Ivan's wife, Tammy, had sent these boots up to Minnesota with investigator Frankum. You see, when Ivan was arrested, the Honda he and his mother were in was impounded. And according to Sylvia, when she was able to get the Honda out of the impound, these black boots were in the trunk. And at some point, Sylvia gave these boots to Tammy to hold on to. Now, there is no paper trail, so it is possible that Sylvia and Tammy got a used pair of boots and came up with this story. But it's not like these boots are a smoking gun or anything, so it seems unlikely they would manufacture this narrative. And seeing how these boots are Amy's size and something she said herself she would wear, I think it's safe to presume the boots Amy was holding in Minnesota in 2012 were the boots she testified that Ivan threw in a dumpster in Arkansas in 2000. It's also interesting to note this whole story about Ivan throwing away their shoes in Arkansas was not in any of Amy's statements to police. So I wonder where this apparently false testimony could have come when you met with the prosecutors, those three to five hours, whatever it was, before the trial started, what did y'all do for those all those hours? And they just kind of talked to me or whatever. Um, on November 7th, when y'all came back, y'all met with, um, you and Ivan met with Sylvia, his mother, and his Aunt Penny. Yeah, later on that night. Yeah, and that was at IHOP. It could have been. Okay. 
right. I, I can't recall the restaurant. Do I know you, when we were sitting there, though, he, he, he still had, like, the gun on his lap or whatever, and I don't know. I don't know what to think. You've heard Sylvia and Penny's account of IHOP. It is fascinating to now imagine that scenario with the gun being in Ivan's lap. You remember seeing any police officers inside there? When there were like six of them sitting there eating? Do you recall? Oh, that? there there is a couple of cops there. I don't recall like how many. Um, why didn't you talk to them about this situation or make an outcry to them? Because he has a gun. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I remember when my mom and I were driving to the store and uh, Ivan and my stepdad stay back at the house and I seen a cop. I'm like, oh, I just want to go talk to him so bad. And she goes, about what? And I'm like, never mind. Because I didn't know what he would have done if he would have pulled up, you know, seen the cop car pull up to my mom and dad's place, or my stepdad's place. Sure. He had the gun still there. He could have did something. My mom is a very worry wart or whatever, you know. Worry wart? Yeah. Okay. And she could have, like, you know, just walked in and panicked or whatever and not sure. be able to play it off, and she could right. got her. You know, I told you I, I met with Tani. She told me that, uh, you know, you and Ivan came over to the apartment and then Ivan left. And then she left to go to work, remember? Mm. She left you there alone for a while? Oh, she could have. And, and, I mean, you yeah. you testified to that also. Yeah, I, I don't read. Do you know if anybody else came over her apartment during that time? Not that I recall. I know I was out cold. <laughs> I know I was sleeping. Another opportunity to walk out of the door and get away from her captor, Ivan. But Amy was just sleeping on the couch. Okay. No, I don't recall if somebody did or not. They could have. Could have. But I mean, you were you were there alone, so. Yeah, yeah. I don't recall anybody okay. coming over. But it's been so long ago. When Tony was dropping you off at the airport, and you told her to look under the couch, do you remember that? No, I don't. Do you remember what all y'all talked about over there, you and Tony? No, I don't. I remember Tony dropping me off. And she walked you up to the gate? Yeah. And you gave her some money? Yeah, we we split whatever we found of Ivan's. You split it? Yeah. Did y'all make an agreement to split it? I mean, was that the plan? She, I know Ivan owed her money, and I said, well, here. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't like a, we're going to split this money. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay, but did you ever tell her to to look under the couch? I don't recall that. Sorry. Okay. All right. I remember when I got off the plane, I was in, I drank on the plane, I was intoxicated, and when my stepdad was driving, I kept watching behind us, and he's like, "What's going on?" I'm like, uh, "I'm always thinking the mafia was going to come after me." <laughs> they never did, though, did they? No. Yeah. The guys from Super Salad never did either, did they? Uh -oh. Yeah. Okay. Did anyone ever talk to you about cleaning up the crime scene? Yeah. No one ever did. That I was gonna clean it up, or? Uh, did anyone ever talk? Like, did anybody ask me to? No, nobody asked me to go. Okay. Yeah. Do you know if anybody did get asked to do that? 
Um, yeah. Who did? <laughs> Jeff. I already know that, but yeah. do you know if anybody else besides Jeff? No. Okay. I'll represent my sister and say that's enough. <laughs> What's that? I said I'll represent my sister and say that's enough. <laughs> Let's just uh, let's close the case for now. Amy's just uh, trying to be polite. Well, and I appreciate that. And I am too. You know. And, and I appreciate that as well. I just hate seeing her open a scab. You know. Well, it's not opening a scab. Gentlemen, want to pop for the ditch? I can do that for you. Want to what? Pop for the ditch. Pop for the ditch. It's a figure yeah. of speech. <laughs> oh, no, I'm okay. I appreciate that. That's over yeah. way up here. Yeah, we'll crash into the ditch. Yeah, so. What time is it? That's what I'm kind of getting at you here. Hey, hey, Jeff. Uh, you testified during the trial. I that, don't know nothing. That uh, I don't even know. I know how to play football. That's it. You're not going to cooperate at I, all, I, would you? I'll cooperate by saying um, that's enough questions for today. Okay. All right. That interview was from 2012, but let's back up to 2010, because in that Fifth Circuit hearing, Gina Bunn gave oral arguments. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Afternoon, welcome to both council. We have a special setting this afternoon to hear arguments in Cantu versus Thaler. We begin with Mr. Cantu, Ms. Bunn. Thank you, Judge Stewart. May it please the court. Counsel in a capital case have a constitutional duty to investigate, first, the facts and circumstances surrounding the offense of which their client is accused, and second, the background of their client to determine the existence of mitigating evidence. Ivan Cantu's court-appointed lawyers, Matt Geller and Don High, failed in both respects in this case and they deprived Mr. Cantu of his constitutional right to the effective assistance of counsel. First, the guilt-innocence phase claim. 
This claim was not raised in state court. We concede that. Referring to Jan Hemphill for not raising the ineffective assistance of counsel in the guilt and innocence phase of Ivan's state writ of habeas corpus. And it was on this basis that the lower court dismissed the claim as procedurally barred. That, we argue, was error. The claim is not procedurally barred because it is not exhausted. The claim can only be deemed exhausted if it's entirely clear that the claim would be barred in state court. And that clarity is simply not present in this case. And that absent that clarity, a procedural bar was the inappropriate holding in the case. But even if this court agrees with the court below that this claim is procedurally barred, in this case, there is an exception to that bar, the ineffectiveness of state habeas counsel. I take it that throughout the proceedings, the trial, et cetera, Mr. Cantu had two counsel at all times. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor, that is correct. At trial, Mr. Cantu had two lawyers. On state, state habeas counsel, however, he only had one attorney. And this was the one time, this was the one, under Texas law, this was the first opportunity that Mr. Cantu had to challenge the performance of his trial lawyers. He had one counsel for state, on state habeas review. That attorney, Jan Hemphill, did not communicate with Mr. Cantu, did not consult with him at all about the claims that would be raised, failed to raise any claim challenging the conviction and only challenged the punishment phase, the death sentence itself, and failed to raise any kind of claim regarding the effectiveness of counsel in challenging the state's case on guilt innocence. And Cantu was, in fact, deprived of this right to counsel on state review, the first chance he had to raise this claim challenging trial counsel's performance. And he did not, he was deprived of that right to counsel. He had two lawyers at the trial, and he has a different lawyer, a third lawyer, on state habeas, right? Yes. Okay. Why would this case be the compelling case to say that, you know, cut through a new road? I mean, you know, we get many cases where there's one counsel, barely counsel, et cetera, but he had two lawyers at trial to make the decisions, and he gets a third, a different counsel on state habeas. So I'm just saying qualitatively, how can this be the compelling case that he was deprived, quote unquote? Your Honor, the simple fact that he had two lawyers representing him at trial certainly doesn't insulate those, the decisions that those two attorneys made from constitutional attack. Two attorneys can, can fail to... Oh, certainly. And I'm not suggesting that because he had two means, you know, you're, you're out. I guess I'm cutting more back to the question on his state habeas counsel. He has a different person who ostensibly doesn't have to defend what the other lawyers did, et cetera, et cetera. So what is your kind of art? He never had conversations to say he had no opportunity. What are you arguing? That the habeas lawyer didn't talk to him about it, didn't consider that as an option, but talked to him about other things. Is that what he's asserting? Yes, Your Honor. That by failing to communicate with Mr. Cantu, by failing to even look into the issue of the guilt innocence and what could have been done at trial, 
what trial counsel should have done by challenging trial counsel's performance at all at the guilt-innocence phase, that Mr. Cantu's state habeas counsel rendered ineffective assistance by not raising this claim on state habeas, by failing to challenge at the first opportunity Cantu had in the process to challenge that performance, state habeas counsel failed to do it. And just to discuss briefly the merits of that claim, counsel really failed to conduct any independent investigation of the facts of this case, apart from what he was given, what they were given by the state through discovery. And even that, trial counsel, even that, there were significant portions of the record and, and portions that were turned over that were actually even admitted into evidence at trial that trial counsel failed to scrutinize and make use of at trial. Now, one thing to th this case, James Mosqueda, the victim in this case, was a big time drug dealer. I mean, the, the evidence clearly shows that. Uh, he had connections with many big time drug dealers. Uh, Ivan Cantu was not a drug dealer. He was not involved in that lifestyle. He was, he used drugs, but he was not involved in the business. Counsel did not request a defense investigator. In a case where the cast of characters alone, uh, Carlos Gonzalez, Anthony Vonseca, Mario Rojas, a, a rival drug dealer who, in the course of the trial, the lead detective for the first time presented to the defense evidence that they had actually received an anonymous tip during the investigation that uh, James Mosqueda owed him a great deal of money. There was a lot of evidence available about the the drug dealers and the the people that James Mosqueda uh, associated with. Um, the state used, in this case, a DNA expert, a ballistics expert, a blood spatter expert, medical examiner, fingerprint expert. The defense requested not a single expert, not a single expert to attempt to combat the state's case in chief. And Amy Better, the state's star witness in this case, who, who was Ivan's girlfriend, uh, so much, of course, the state relied on Amy Better to make their case. Um, she was on probation. She was never revoked, even though there was obviously a basis for revocation of her proba probation. It was indicated at some point she was going to take a polygraph, but she never did. Um, and interestingly, in the, in the trial record, her stepfather recalled her saying, I'm scared to death. After, after she found out that Ivan had been arrested, she says, I'm scared to death. They are going to kill me. Get me out of here. And then they took the car. And then they left the gun at the old girlfriend's house. She had seen a lot. She had seen a lot, but it's after Ivan is arrested, after Ivan is removed from the situation that she calls her stepfather and tells him, I'm scared they are going to kill me. Get me out of here. Who is she talking about? And given the evidence that someone else had access to Ivan's apartment, uh, given the evidence that someone else could have driven the Corvette, and Amy Betcher knew these people as well as Ivan did. An inaudible member of the court asked something to Gina. That goes to the claim of ineffective <coughs> assistance regarding punishment phase. He is prejudiced by the fact that basically the state put on evidence of um, his failure to hold 
a job, his his going AWOL from the military, his uh, some instances of domestic violence against uh, a wife, uh, an ex-wife. But what they didn't, what the defense failed to do was to put this evidence, and actually the, the defense evidence as well, into the context of bipolar disorder, which the state's evidence would have just really fallen into place. And it is interesting in the same appeal, lawyers will argue ineffective assistance of counsel in both the guilt-innocence phase and the punishment phase, arguing both innocence and arguing if they did do it, this is how counsel was ineffective in the punishment phase, consequently resulting in their client receiving the death penalty. It would have explained for the jury not only the offense itself, and two months before this instant offense occurred, two months, counsel knew that Mr. Cantu had been hospitalized for a major depressive episode two months before this offense occurred. Yet counsel did not have him examined by a mental health expert. Uh, On state habeas, uh, he was examined by a mental health expert and it was, he he was diagnosed as bipolar. Uh, This, basically it would have shown the jury by presenting evidence of bipolar disorder, it would have explained the offense for the jury and it would have really um, neutral. Could it have benefited him? How, would it, how could it have changed this lawyer's approach to the death penalty versus life sentence? Well, really both on the future dangerousness issues as well as the mitigation issue. On future dangerousness, the evidence would have been not only does he uh, suffer from this disorder and it, and it contributed to his commission of the offense, but also... It explains the offense. It puts it in context. It shows the jury this is not just, this is, was not a choice for him. This was a, he, he suffered from a mental disorder that was likely inherited, that affected his, his ability to process, his ability to uh, control impulse, his ability, and basically he was on a roller coaster. But wouldn't that work as detriment in the punishment phase? Well, there would have been testimony along with it that this is treated, can be treated through medication. People who suffer from bipolar often uh, use illegal drugs to self-medicate. That was certainly the case and was certainly borne out by the trial record in this case that Mr. Cantu did use drugs uh, to self-medicate to, for his mental condition uh, that uh, removed from that uh, situation removed from uh, the use of, of illegal drugs or any other substance like that and medicated uh, for his disorder that he would not present a future danger. I should remember, but I don't. Was in the punishment phase, uh, did the, the jury find that he was, he would be a future danger? Yes, Your Honor, they did. Uh, and in fact, under Texas law, that is basically a death eligibility requirement before showing that, before finding someone eligible for the death penalty, he must... Oh, it's one of the special issues. Yes, Your Honor, that's but correct. I didn't know if they addressed it. And, and it would, I think this evidence would have been relevant both to that inquiry and also, even if the jury had found that he was a future danger, 
the jury is then instructed to decide whether there are mitigating circumstances sufficient to justify a sentence less than death. Well, going, taking that issue a step further, um, there was a hearing in which the lawyers themselves either testified or there were affidavits, correct? That is correct. So. The judge is referring to those 2005 affidavits Geller and High prepared separately and in which Geller stated, Ivan confessed to him. And now the state makes their argument in reference to... Mr. Gantu raises three issues. Ineffective assistance for failure to produce the bipolar, ineffective assistance for failure to offer the guilt innocence evidence, and a freestanding claim of actual innocence. Let's start with the bipolar first. One of the main reasons counsel probably was reasonable not to offer evidence of bipolar was because in the words of Matt Geller, lead counsel, Mr. Cantu refused to participate in any psychological mitigation strategies. He didn't want a mental health-related punishment defense. Two, anytime you raise an issue of ineffective assistance based on missing evidence, based on testimony that wasn't presented, you have to show what the evidence would have been. If we look at the affidavit of the psychologist, his Milam, it says many things, but one of the things it does not say is that the petitioner has bipolar disorder. It says he has symptoms consistent with bipolar disorder. It says he has symptoms suggestive of bipolar disorder. Attorney said they were familiar with bipolar. He didn't offer any symptoms that they would be aware of. They had access to the Parkland Hospital medical records from his hospitalization in August. The murders occurred in November. The medical and psychological write-ups from Parkland Hospital didn't mention bipolar disorder. That was the depression commitment? That was the depression commitment, that's correct. Comes down to, were the attorneys, were their actions reasonable? Well, we don't know what further investigation would have revealed. If he went back, if the petitioner went back for further investigation, further testing, and it turned out that the diagnosis was not bipolar, we're back where we are right now. They also, attorneys also wanted to, perhaps not their strongest argument, they also wanted to avoid uh, a mental health based defense because they didn't want to give this, they didn't want to give the state a crack at their client. They thought their client was, they knew he was manipulative. They knew he lied to them. They, he came up with varying explanations for what had happened. Yes, I did it. No, I didn't do it. The pizza man did it. Yes, I did it, but I was brainwashed by rohypnol. So this would not be, regardless of any bipolar question, that would not be the kind of uh, situation where you'd want to give the state a crack at your client. Let's go to the ineffective assistance in terms of uh, guilt innocence. Our position is that the, the, the claim, as we agree with the, with the district court, that the claim is defaulted, and this is a prospective default. Essentially, it was never presented to state court. If the claim were sent back to state court now, would it apply a procedural bar? Our position is, and I think a good, the argument is, is that the state actual innocence standard is, for all intents and purposes, identical to the federal actual innocence standard. In this particular case, he is clearly saying 
actual uh, factual innocence. I was somewhere else. Somebody else did it. In fact, isn't that a complete contradiction of the bipolar defense where he's saying or counsel saying, oh, I was mentally unstable. That's why I killed the people as opposed to someone else killed my cousin and his girlfriend. Yes. You can't really have both, can you? I'm sure he would try. But yes, he that is factually uh, inconsistent. That's correct. Even if the claim were not defaulted, even if we were going to look at the evidence, this is not a case of actual innocence. If we take a look at the physical and undisputed evidence, it is the jeans, the socks, the 380 Colt semi-automatic pistol, all the jeans, the socks were found in Cantu's apartment. The pistol was found at his old girlfriend's apartment. His fingerprints were on the clip. James Mosqueda's Corvette was found at Cantu's apartment in the parking lot, 30 yards from the front door. The Mercedes keys to Amy Kitchens, Mercedes was found in his apartment. Key to the Gibbon Street house where Mosqueda and Kitchens lived was found in his apartment. After the killings, the night of the killings, when they went out partying, when Amy Betcher flashed around a diamond ring, that's not disputed. Might be disputed where it came from. It's not disputed she flashed it around. That's just the physical and undisputed evidence. Then we have Amy Betcher's testimony. She said, before the petitioner went over to the victim's house, he said, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to kill James and Amy. He came back. He had blood on him, blood on his hair, blood on his shirt, blood on his jeans. He said his face was somehow swollen. He said it wasn't pretty. He had the IDs of James Mosqueda and Amy Kitchens. He was angry because his pistol had jammed. He took her back over to their house, the Gibbon Street house, made her go inside the house. She saw James Mosqueda on the bed. She saw Amy Kitchens on the floor. He made her help him look for cocaine in the house for about 10 minutes. Then they left. When they went back to Cantu's apartment at that point, he proposed and gave her the ring. They then went out partying. The next day they went and left for Arkansas. This is not a strong actual innocence case. Even if it were to go to state court, the state court applying the actual innocence standard would not grant a new application, a new habeas application. In a prospective procedural default that arises when a petitioner fails to present a claim to state court, a federal court always must make some sort of estimate about what the state court will do. That is how the procedural bar works. It has to make an estimate that if this goes back to state court, the state court will dismiss it, will not review it on the merits. After this 2010 hearing, the Fifth Circuit Court ultimately determined that we had not raised a claim, at least not gotten over the gateway of the procedural default. So basically, the federal courts never reviewed the merit of the ineffective assistance claims, basically holding that um, because the state court didn't consider them, they weren't going to either. 
I disagree with the federal court's rulings. I think that we that we did raise enough of an issue regarding, you know, why did state habeas counsel not raise these issues? She should have raised these issues. And her failure was, in fact, itself ineffective assistance. And on that basis, the federal court should have reviewed these claims. Coming down to, you know, down to it, really no court has ever reviewed the performance of Ivan's trial attorneys at the guilt-innocence phase, at least not on the merits. They've always looked at it through this procedural default lens, uh, which, you know, it requires a, a heightened level of, uh, you know, you just have to prove, you have to show more. Um, you know, the difficulty with these cases is that with every um, level of appeal, it literally just gets more and more difficult to meet the standards of review the further you get from trial. What else has happened in your case since getting Gina as your current attorney up through today and where, where things stand? Well, things are not good. My appeals are exhausted. I was completely denied by the Supreme Court um, in 2017. I could get an execution date any day. This interview was on November 13th of 2022, about a month before Ivan got his execution date scheduled for April 26th, 2023. How do you spend your days? What do you spend? What is your time here day to day like? I try to keep my mind busy. You know, I write letters, um, you know, I read, listen to the radio, um, you know, catch, catch the program that I enjoy. Um, and really that's about it. Um, you know, since, uh, with, since, since a year ago, uh, the warden here has, has loosened up some of the, the restraints on, on the unit. And they, um, we have a faith-based, I'm not in the faith-based program. Um, but they, they do have a faith-based program now. But through that ministry, they, uh, I hadn't seen a TV, a real actual TV in, in over 20 years till last year. And so they would bring in these big screens and set them up in the day room. Um, we don't get to go to the day room and watch TV, but from our cell, we can see them. And, uh, and I haven't seen, you know, moving over 20 years or even a, or even a TV. So, I mean, um, over the last year, that was, that was pretty nice. We were able to see. Um, see it, but not hear it? Or? No, I can hear it. Okay. Yeah, they have a little transmitter that they put on the TV that broadcast it through the, the AM radio so we can take our, oh, our, okay. our AM, FM radio, put it on AM, go to a certain channel and, and basically stand at the door and watch the movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's helped some. I know that, uh, I mean, your your activities are probably pretty limited. I mean, are you, do you get outside activity at all? I mean. We're allowed out, well, normally we're supposed to be allowed outside twice, twice a week, but because of the short staff and the operations and the way that the prison's running right now, they're only running rec three days a week, and on one of those days I can go outside, but I'm able to uh, just go on an outside rec yard. It's completely enclosed, um, depending on where um, I fall into the rec rotation. It's either, either going to be early in the morning at six when it's dark, or it could be at, at noon in the afternoon when the sun's out, or towards the, the tail end of the day when the sun's going down. But, um, you know, I, I go. Um, you know, walk around. Uh, there's a basketball out there, um, basketball net. Do you think you'll get a new trial? Once we put everything together and, and file my successive writ, I, I truly believe that um, I'll have a, a new trial. Yeah, I mean, which, what writ is that? The 
this is going to be my successor for it. What remind me what that is? It's called an 11.071. It's an extension of the state habeas. But you have to uh, you have to meet the requirements to show that the information that you're presented to get relief that it was you know withheld, new, and that it would have uh, changed the outcome of the trial. And with the evidence that we've got, we can meet all three of those. So um, at this stage, you know, once the podcast comes to a close and all of the affidavits are put together and the case has been completely discredited, um, you know, that will be put together and put on paper. My judge will have to order the hearings and everybody that we're going to discredit is going to be on that stand and she'll be able to talk to them, ask them questions, ask Wayne himself, hey, you clearly knew that that Rolex was never missing. What is Gino waiting on as far as to file that? There's no sense in her putting my writ together and getting it in. And if something was to pop up, whether it be a new witness, new information, puts the cherry on top or, or seals this thing. She's waiting on, on the podcast to come to a close and completely be done with the work product of the experts that are involved. So that's the next thing she may do, that 11.071 filing. Right. Then my judge will order some hearings. I'll go back to Collin County. I imagine I'll be there, you know, a week or so, you know, while she, you know, confronts Carlos, confronts Detective Wynn, confronts everybody that took that stand and lied. I mean, they clearly knew that they were hammering on Amy to create and manufacture those BS statements. That's our time here. Um... Let me, um... Before we close, remember in the past you had asked if there's anything that I have to say. Um, can, I, can I go ahead and say it? Yeah. Yeah, I want my mom to know that um, I love her. I miss her. I need her to hang in there. And just please stay positive. Keep praying. And uh, eventually I will come home. I do have a message for Ron Howard. Believe it or not, in 1978, he made a, a made-for-TV movie called Cotton Candy, so he's familiar with the, the Dallas area because he was at Town East Mall there in Mesquite. They played a, a clip of him not long ago on CBS Sunday Morning. They were asking him about the projects that he gets involved in and why he tackles you know, the things that he tackles. When it comes to wrongful convictions, this is the Apollo 13 of that. He likes to tackle stories that says, how in the world did this happen? Please, Ron Howard, call Matt and he'll explain to you exactly how this happened. But uh, we need your help. The Closing Arguments, next time on Cousins by Blood. Ivan has about 75 days until his execution date. If you think he's more deserving of a new trial than death, and you want to know what you can do to help, email us at cousinsbybloodpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll let you know how. The Prosecution, read by Catherine Ganaimi Leach. Amy's Testimony and Statements, read by Sarah Marguerite. Tammy's emails, read by Lydia Meadows. 
Rodolfo Pichardo emails, read by Dale De La Fuente. Kramer's testimony, read by Dan Marsh. Mixing and mastering by Jody Abbott. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. <laughs>